So tonight's talk is entitled, A Genuine Happiness, Our Ultimate Concern. And this is a talk that didn't exist two hours ago. <laughs> so I'm as curious as you are. <clears throat> the Dalai Lama says, I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. Whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we are all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. If we embrace the Dalai Lama's view that we are all seeking happiness, we may wonder why we are not all living in utopia. So this practice, so much of Buddhist practice, I think it has its grim view because there's so much talk about suffering. But the goal of the practice, I think, is this search and this genuine happiness to actually really be at ease in this world and trying to find a way to make that work. And that's not easy. The... Um, Indian yogi Shantideva says here, those desiring to escape from suffering hasten right towards suffering. With the very desire for happiness, out of delusion, they destroy their own happiness as if it were an enemy. A century yogi. So it's out of this delusion, out of this confusion, out of this not really quite understanding the issue at hand, not understanding the limitations of our human experience, not understanding the possibilities of our human experience. In other words, because we are unclear about what makes us truly happy, we often exacerbate our own and other suffering. A sincere attempt to alleviate this situation individually and collectively is the primary practice. It's the primary concern of our practice. It's what the Dharma is all about. How do we alleviate the suffering that we create ourselves and others out of a sense of delusion, not understanding things clearly, oftentimes out of a sense of hurt, defensiveness, protection, self-centeredness. It's so frustrating because you think we should just be able to just like not do that. Right? Should just stop all of that. But it's hard to do. So generally speaking, I think one of the ways to look at Happiness is to look at it that there's two kinds of happiness that we have to find a middle way between. And then there's, there's hedonic happiness, um, and then there's genuine happiness. And so we don't want to think that one is more important than the other. One of the problems that we get into in Buddhist practice, one of the things that I have certainly have been guilty of, is that I hear this, okay, happiness isn't out there. 
happiness is an inside job. And then I start to have contempt for the world. And I start to think that participating in pleasure and uh, worldliness is somehow bad or wrong, and that it's actually all an inside job. And I have a long history of, of, of addiction and trauma. And so I've been <laughs> very burned many times by hedonic pleasure. <laughs> but that has sometimes created a false sense of superiority, a sense of um, I want to be above it all, a sense of being better than people who participate in the world, a kind of spiritual arrogance. That's not a middle way. That's an extreme view. And so the definition here, hedonic happiness is stimulus-driven pleasure that is derived from what we get from the world. And there's nothing wrong with hedonic pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the joy that we get from our $4 coffee, a good meal, a new pair of sneakers, our favorite podcast app. Our coveted iPhone. Ah, <laughs> oh, makes me feel so safe to just open up this. <laughs> right? But as practitioners, I've fallen into this trap before, and I've seen many other people fall into this trap of starting to think of what we do on retreat here and being free from those distractions, that somehow participating in the world and the pleasure of the world is somehow bad or wrong, and we shouldn't do that. And maybe... Like me, some of us have been burned by hedonic pleasure through uh, losing things, not so much the material sense, but maybe. Maybe you lost a great job that you had at one point. Maybe some things that were important to you were lost, broken, stolen. And also there, there's, there's, there's a sense of this. One of the areas where hedonic pleasure and genuine happiness converge is in the relational field, the happiness that I get from other people the happiness and joy that I get from my relationships with other human beings. So important. Such a rich and beautiful part of the human experience, and yet can be very, very painful. Talk about both and. Human beings, other human beings have been the greatest, jo- the greatest source of joy and misery for me historically. <laughs> Up until... Very recently. <laughs> right? Does that mean I should... Well, I'm not going to participate in that anymore because it's too painful. That's not what Dharma's about. That's not what we're trying to do. There's no wisdom and aversion. I'm not going to participate in the world because it's too painful. Or we look at the political and social landscape dare you take a look at those two items. <laughs> and we think, I don't want to deal with any of this horrible shit. <laughs> no wonder why people put on brown robes and shave their heads. <laughs> All of a sudden, the monastic life starts to look kind of attractive. <laughs> yeah, right? And also, that, that is an option, right? That's also an option for us. The, the Buddhist tradition does offer a monastic way of life that anybody can embrace. Probably not for most of us.
But most importantly, happiness researchers have been studying hedonic happiness and well-being for years. And what they've discovered is that once our basic needs are met, food, shelter, access to education, and medical care, that our sense of genuine happiness goes up very little. Once we have the basic needs of this world, which probably everybody here, I would assume, has, once the basic needs are met, the world, and there's boatloads of research, secular research, that people actually don't experience much happier, much more happiness as they acquire more of that kind of pleasure. That's interesting to me. You know, when I look at my own life, there's been I've had a most of, most of my life for for the most part I've been pretty much wanting for nothing, but I, I would say I've been kind of broke most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but my basic needs always have been met. And there's been some times where I, you know, there was times in my life where I've sold property or. Uh, a few times in my life where I've had, you know, a hundred thousand, I've gotten checks in the mail for a hundred thousand dollars. For me, that was a major. And there's been times where I had to go to the gas station and go to the inside and put three dollars and eighty-two cents of change in my gas tank to get to work. And actually, so those are some of the happiest times of my life when I had nothing. I had enough. Of my, I had all my basic needs met, but I, I, I practiced a lot more. I sat a lot more. I studied Dharma a lot more. I didn't have the means to participate in hedonic pleasure so much, so I stayed home and played guitar and wrote music and read and sat and took my dog for walks. It was great. <laughs> the hundred thousand dollar check in the mail ruined everything. <laughs> all of a sudden, the floodgates opened. This is very much the case. And, and to some degree, this is, you hear this and you think, yeah, you already know this, right? This isn't that profound information I'm giving you. We know that. But the world is just always dangling that carrot. The next job, the next this, the next that's going to be. Once I get the kitchen remodeled, then I'll be happy. Until the washing machine breaks or... You're like, actually, I like my old refrigerator better. (laughs) The ice maker doesn't work. So genuine happiness is defined here is the distinct experience of fulfillment and satisfaction based on the quality of being that we bring into the world rather than the pleasure that comes from getting what we can from the world. In other words, genuine happiness is based upon how we are, not what we get. This is the core of Dharma. How are we? One happiness researcher writes here, Satisfaction and happiness is less a matter of getting what you want, but rather wanting what you have. Try flipping the script on that. See what your brain does. Happiness and satisfaction, it's not about getting what you want. 
It's about wanting what you have. And again, this, this is the, the nature, the very nature of this quality of mudita, of appreciation, of gratitude. Of joy. To appreciate, to increase in value and worth. It destroys the comparing mind. And of course, we live in a world that wants to activate our, our comparing mind. I said, wouldn't you be happier if you had what he had? Yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> <laughs> the world, our society, our media, all of these things, is constantly trying to remind us that we're unhappy. And that, I mean, this is our economy, right? This is the economy of the world. Is hedonic pleasure. So it is this distinct experience of fulfillment and satisfaction based on the quality of being that we bring to the world. Genuine happiness is based on how we are, not what we get. Unlike hedonic happiness, genuine happiness is not stimulus-driven, and therefore it does not have a fleeting reliance upon external conditions and circumstances, and does not diminish the more it is experienced. You know this term, the hedonic treadmill. This is this. This is what activates the craving machine. I don't know about you, but I have this like Terminator grade. <laughs> craving machine. <laughs> I always thought about that. I always looked at other people and do people want because like most of my life when I want something, I want it really bad. <laughs> and when I don't want something, I really don't want it. And I will do weird shit to get and to avoid almost anything. <laughs> I will go miles out of my way to avoid conflict. This, I think, has also been the nature of my addiction, is this kind of very strong... I've had, uh, in my life, I've also had the experience of having friends who don't have that. and I'm always uh, totally blown away when I have a friend who's like maybe working on getting a job, and they've been working on it for years, and they've been going to school, and they've been working for it, working for it, and, and then it doesn't happen. They're like, yeah, well, you know, it's... You know, it's too bad, but you know, it's okay. And I'm like, dude, I would be, I would not be experiencing that. I would not have that equanimity. <laughs> I get mad at them that they're not more pissed off. <laughs> you should be like, you should go burn the building down. <laughs> Fuck them. The people are like, well, you know, sometimes things just don't work out. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> Things just don't work out. <laughs> Make that stuff work out. <clears throat> this has been my karma, which does provide interesting stories, so it does, it's somewhat useful. The key thing to remember here, I think, that's so important 
is the complexity of this, both and. Ultimately, the two kinds of happiness are interrelated and not mutually exclusive. So it's not like choose. Do you want hedonic pleasure or do you want genuine happiness? It's not like that. It's too black and white. This was the, this was the Buddhist plight right from the get-go. In his world, he saw the dangers of material world, of giving into craving. But uh, as Cheryl was saying, he also saw the dangers of, of renunciation in, in a very kind of, what's the word, uh, aesthetic sense of like, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to participate, I'm not even going to eat food. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to sit here and starve to death. (laughs) Then they'll be sorry. (laughs) That's not going to work. So it's just, just, for us, I think it's this fine line between between, uh, poverty, having a poverty mentality, which I actually at some point in my life and feel uh, one of the things that has helped me therapeutically in my practice is breaking myself from a poverty mentality like I don't deserve good things. But not giving into that poverty mentality, feeling undeserving of hedonic pleasure, or feeling like we'll just settle. Because either we don't deserve it or it's going to be too hard or we procrastinate or we don't have that proper motivation. That's one side of it. But we also don't want to become materialistic and greedy. So these, the, the way in which we relate to this internal, external, spiritual, material, whatever framework you use, it's not an either-or game here. And that makes it very complex to try to negotiate that and be honest about our desire systems and overcome our sense of not worth or overcome our sense of we don't deserve or becoming too entitled. We do deserve. And I know that my my mind can fluctuate from those extremes. I can be very entitled about certain things at certain times. And I can feel very undeserving of things. I can go from one extreme to another in a 24-hour period about the same thing. So how do we find that kind of middle balance? It's kind of our, I think it's our essential plight, isn't it? How do we come to terms? This really, I think, is our ultimate concern. How do we make this work for us? And again, ultimately, these two kinds of happiness are interrelated and not mutually exclusive. For example, in order to deepen a meditation practice, it is essential to have hedonic joy of friendship in a conducive environment. Like here we are. If we were in downtown Albuquerque or South Central Los Angeles or in New York City, we would not be having the experience we'd be having. Can you imagine noise and traffic? And this is a, such a conducive environment. So 
part of coming to Vallecitos and part of coming to a, a place like this, it's actually intentionally designed for a large degree of hedonic joy. External joy, beauty, lack of distractions, no cell service, food provided for you. This is intentional. These retreat centers are very intentional. Just enough of hedonic pleasure so that when you start practicing, it's conducive. You know, with good people, hopefully you get some good teachers from time to time. <laughs> and, you know, this, this is what allows, and this has been going on for 3,000 years. With the cultivation of genuine happiness, we can more fully enjoy hedonic pleasure. On the other hand, when we are experiencing genuine unhappiness, hedonic pleasure provides little or no satisfaction. When we're lost in the throes of, of, of hopelessness or shame or these kind of defilements and destructive mind states, the most delicious meal in the world does me no joy. Because the mashed potatoes were a little too salty. Or whatever. How many times have you been in, in, in a really, really great, hedonic, pleasurable situation? And there was this one thing that you noticed about it that wasn't quite right. And it just ruined the whole thing. Right? As Shanti Davis says, in our, in our quest for happiness, we destroy it out of delusion because when we're in afflictive mind states, we're in destructive emotions, when there's etern- internal suffering, all of the joy and the beauty and all of the hedonic pleasure and all of the success and all of the abundance of this world provides <coughs> little to no satisfaction. And if we look at our culture, we look at celebrities, we look at some of the people in the world who have all the hedonic pleasure. Not a lot of genuine happiness. And we know that, but we think, no, I'll, I'll this is what I do, I think I'll actually really do. <laughs> I have a real serious Dharma practice, so bring on the hedonic pleasure, I will enjoy it all. <laughs> and then the $100,000 check comes in the mail and I start suffering, what am I going to get? I was much happier when I was going into the gas station in Nashville, Tennessee, going, I'll take 318 on pump two, please. (laughs) (laughs) Cha-ching! Good luck with that. Some of the best years of my life. So the question becomes, how do we develop a middle way between worldly hedonic happiness and inner cultivation? Both are good. Both are useful. How do we participate in all of the joy in this world and know the gratification, the danger, and the escape? Shaul mentioned that the other night. It's a really core Buddhist teaching. The Buddha is very honest about that. There is lots of gratification in the world. Sense pleasure, abundance, all of the sensory pleasure. There is gratification in the world. It doesn't permanently satisfy, as I'm sure you're painfully aware. It's impermanent. It doesn't last. But it's there. 
It's a thing. Gratification is a thing. You've probably experienced it many times. But it's dangerous. Anybody who's ever had any addictive behaviors around behaviors or substances knows how dangerous the gratification of this world can be. It's dangerous. So the Buddha says, yes, but you can participate in it. There's pleasure. There's happiness. There's joy. Don't, don't be scared. Don't be contemptuous. But be careful. Because it's dangerous. Because it gives rise to clinging. It gives rise to self-centeredness. It gives rise to selfishness and to greed and to jealousy and to envy. It can give rise to all of these kinds of experiences, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. So we just have to monitor, to be aware, to be careful, to be heedful. The gratification, the danger, and the escape. What is the escape? In the earliest teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha would say, what is the world, what is the cause of the world, what is the end of the world, and what is the path that leads to the end of the world? And he says, the gates of the deathless are open. That there is this there is this present time divine abiding of just presence and ease that is not dependent upon any causes or conditions. It's actually totally available all the time. Right? And so we, we train, we practice meditation, we've been doing it all week long, trying to just calibrate all the systems to get that dharmic insight of like, I think I might be okay. <laughs> I'm not convinced yet. But I, I think maybe. <laughs> That's massive. And it doesn't come from an external source. It comes from a, an inner cultivation of presence, of ease. Now, cultivating that, that experience is a sense of genuine happiness or equanimity, I would use. That's the word I historically have used. It's very rare to hear me give a talk on genuine happiness. But I've been finding in my practice in the last few years, I, I've really been very more optimistic and hopeful about this genuine happiness. One of the things that precipitated that was the fact that I almost got killed a couple years ago in a motorcycle accident. And I'll tell you one thing, I don't recommend it, but almost dying will get your priorities straight real quick. I came out of the hospital after almost dying, and I had a whole wonderful drop-down menu of shit I ain't doing no more. <laughs> and if people are disappointed by that, then they can go ahead and be disappointed, because that's none of my business. It just gave me this radical self-compassion. This is my life. I'm going to be true to myself. Because it can end like that. Driving down Vermont Avenue on a motorcycle, it could have been over. Gone. Spending all those years chasing hedonic pleasure, missing out. So for me, that was a massive, massive awakening into just really trying to, you know, 
just be true to what what's important to me and to be honest about what's important to me and feel like um, deserving of what's important to me. What value? What do I what do I value? And just really being able to calibrate my intention in the direction of what I value, regardless of what the world or other people think about that. Unfortunately, it's these tragic events that usually inspire. Getting sober was like that for me, and I know it's like that for a lot of people. But we do have these big episodes in our life, don't we, that, that, we, that kind of go, oh, wait, no, 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 not, don't, go that, no don't go that way, go this way. And we get kind of these big recalibrations. So sometimes it's good to look at the subjective, our subjective experience of our ultimate concerns. What I call the what is happiness, the where is it, and how do I go about this. And I think it's very important that we respect and we be honest about our subjective reality here. Because we're all very quite different. My interests in the world and the things that bring me happiness through the hedonic realm is very different probably than yours. And I think that one of the things that's hard for us to do is really trying to just be honest with ourselves about our desire system. About our what, what we're interested in, what our sexual interests are, our sexual desires romantic, you know, sometimes we can feel a bit of guilt or shame or fear about what's important to us, what's valuable to us, what do we really value, for a, probably a variety of obvious reasons. And so that just, there's a lot of self-compassion that comes out of that, it's like, I'm going to be true to myself regardless. There's a lot of strength, confidence, faith, trust in that. And so we have to look at some of the ways in which we, fee- we have been let down or failed by happiness. Which I think for me calibrated me into this. You know, I, re- I mentioned it earlier, but I reflect oftentimes on my intense aversion and insanely strong reaction to the initial meta instructions I received. Which started with the phrase, may I be happy. What is so hard? about sitting quietly and saying to myself, that blew me out, so I had to leave the room. I've always had this kind of aversion and suspicion and contempt towards this idea of happiness. And if I look at my early life, it becomes very clear why that's true, because a lot of the things that were the source of my happiness, I lost. I had a lot of death in my early life, family members, my sister who was very close to me died tragically in a car accident, Another, a girlfriend I had a few years later also died in a car accident where I almost died. I've almost died quite a few times. I'm like really hard to kill. This <laughs> 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 is good for me. But it gave me this kind of like sense that, don't get your hopes up, man. Don't get your hopes up. Don't get excited. Don't be happy. Because it will be stripped from you. It will be snatched right out of your hand. Like a thief coming by grabbing your MacBook. Just like, 
Oh, did you like that? Oh, you like that? Oh, here. You see, yeah, you know, I've had that experience of the rug pulled out from underneath me enough at times to create this kind of wound that seeks the arrow of unhappiness. I'll just be unhappy. It's so much easier. If I don't get my hopes up, I won't be let down. That'll work. And this has created a sense of cynicism, sarcasm, <clears throat> negativity, shit-talking, angry and contemptuous at people who actually are genuinely happy. So happiness, as Shanti Deva says, became an enemy. Almost in an intentional way. I was like, you know, I'm not doing the happiness thing. And this is why Dharma and Buddhism was such a relief to me because there was all, all this talk about suffering. I was like, oh, yeah, I can get down with this stuff. <laughs> suffering. I have that. Can I join? I have the suffering. I think I got a really good case of it, too, actually. So I really fit in here. And that was what was so relieving to me about my early introduction to Dharma and to Dharma teachers was this tremendous normalizing of suffering, of this validation of like, it's okay that you're suffering. It's okay that you're in pain. It's okay. It's all okay. Whatever your experience has been up to now, it's okay and it's actually not your fault and it's not a reflection of your value or worth as a human being. That was big news to me at 19 years old. I was like, really? I'm not convinced. But maybe. Maybe. And so a lot of times when we look at how do we get here? How did you get here? When you look at the Bhikkhu Bodhi, as he says, the search for a spiritual path is born out of suffering. It does not start with lights and ecstasy. So most people aren't combing through the hedonic realm of the internet and going, wow, a silent day retreat in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) No talking, no cell phone, no hedonic pleasure, just me staring at my breath all day. (laughs) Ah, sign me up. That's not an ad you see on the back page of the New York Times. I was buried deep in some spam trash folder. <laughs> Where we're just like, I don't know, maybe, like, maybe this will do me some good. I hope I <laughs> Just like, as Bikabodi says, with all escape routes blocked. <laughs> Maybe I'll just sit there and just like deal with my mind. Like that's that's not a carrot that most people are looking for. <laughs> this kind of experience. That's a hard sell. That's why there's no Dharma marketers, because it would be the worst job ever. <laughs> How would you? I have an opportunity for you. A wonderful opportunity. So we all look at these experiences and they arise. They arise in our direct experience. All these 
the, 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 the hedonic pleasure, the desire system, the things that we want, the ways in which we've been burned. And we have to understand the complexity of these things as they arise. It's not like, oh, I have to stop that and I have to do this. It's that we find that we have, most of us, of course, living in our culture, have we've, we've cultivated more hedonic treadmill activity than we have inner cultivation. So when we sit into the inner life and we sit into the heart, into the mind, we, we may, might find it's a little vacant or it's a little bit scary or unsatisfying. But we keep trying, right? We keep coming back. We keep coming back. Even with the most suspicious attempt of like, all right, if you think, I've ever seen that to Stephen Smith, if you think, sitting here, bringing my attention back to my breath will do me some good, I will try it. But let me tell you, I am not convinced, sir. <laughs> I'm really not convinced this is what I need. And I've had years and years and years of, of picking it up and putting it down and picking it up and putting it down. And we do that. That's part of it as well. We see what motivates us, what drives us, what is our primary concern? What has been our primary dissatisfactions? In which ways has, how has our quest for happiness or contentment or happiness or joy? Or how has it burned us? How has it not been successful? How has it been driven out of a sense of woundedness or a sense of not wanting to be in here? I don't like me. I don't like it in here. I don't want to be in here. It's too hard in here. I want to be... I remember being in high school. I remember walking down the hallways of my high school outside of Boston, and our high school had like 5,000 people in it. And I would look at every single person and I would think, I bet it's better in there. I bet it's better in there. I I bet it's better in there. I want to be in there. I want to at least try it out. I am convinced that this is the worst place to be. And the last thing I wanted people to know was that I thought that. So for years and most of my teen years, I cultivated the most inauthentic relationships that I could. They were usually based on alcohol and drugs and who's got my access to hedonic pleasure and these inauthentic, insanely inauthentic friendships. And so I've been so lucky that the Dharma entered my entered my experience when I was nineteen. And so that was just just that like radical shift in perspective, just this this glimmering of hope, of this flickering of an insight that Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks of. Once lit, once lit. Once you see this potential for genuine happiness, it's really, really hard for that flame to die out, even if it's just flickering like way, way out in the distance. There's always that. My mind's always been, oh, what was that again? As I negotiate hedonic pleasure towards genuine happiness. And I've doubled down on both. And it's been this kind of inability to come to terms with the fact that there's a middle way here. That I need to participate in both. And actually that's what the genuine happiness is. Is this participation in the full, complete 
arena of life. All of it. And to stop going into the compartmentalizing, well, that's good and that's good, but that's bad, that's bad, and just kind of the way we do that. Our perceptual mechanisms create good and bad and right and wrong. And I'm not definitely not doing that and I'm never doing that. You know, these kind of really strong, rigid views that we create. And then we destroy our happiness. Because a lot of things that we say no to, we don't even know what we're saying no to. Well, we don't even know what we're saying yes to. Because we don't have that introspective awareness. We don't have that ability to self-reflect and to say, is this, is this valuable? Do I value this? And if I don't value this, I can let it go. And if I do value this, I'm allowed to participate. And then we kind of come into terms with these ideas and start to ask ourselves, well, what is it that we actually hope to accomplish? Is it realistic? Is it, does it come from a place of, of my sense of value? Or does it come from a sense of wanting to please somebody else, or wanting to please the world, or wanting to fit in? And it's so scary to do that. It's so scary to just be true to yourself. Because a lot of times, I'm so scared about what you're going to think. And not only do we destroy our own happiness, but a lot of times we participate with people who destroy each other's happiness. And that the people we are in contact with they don't support us. They actually diminish us. They devalue us. They dismiss us. I get, and that's a really rich... You could write a book on the wound that seeks the arrow around destructive relationships and why we get involved and become interested and entangled with people who actually convince us to destroy our own happiness. this kind of social envy. I want to kind of keep you down a little bit because I don't want to become jealous or envious about who you are and what you have. I want to talk you out of it because it's going to make me feel. And what blocks us from that? Our doubts, our fears, our shames, our sense of unworthiness, our sense of undeservedness. A lot of times these are the things that block us and get in the way of our participation in, in appropriate and beautiful hedonic pleasure. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of it. These, these horrible installations that were downloaded on our hard drives when we were so young we didn't even know that they were being downloaded on our hard drives. You know, and the Buddha talks about this so much, about his, his awakening. The last thing, Cheryl talked about this the other night, that kept him, almost kept him from awakening to this potential and this experience of genuine happiness was this idea of, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? you going to be happy? You? Really? Let's look at the file. <laughs> Hey, everybody, guess what? Dave Smith thinks he's going to be happy. Check it out. Well, 
Not looking good, Dave. We, we looked, we've, we've reviewed your case. We've gone over it. We've talked to people. We don't think you're fit for the job. And you're like, okay. I'm sorry for taking up your time. Who is that? It's not even you. That's just like conditioning and people important to us who installed these ideas. It's learned. It's conditioned. It's a conditioned mind. It's afflictive. It's destructive. It's defilement. And it's insanely overcomable. Can I say overcomable? <laughs> it's insanely, highly overcomable. You do not have to be driven or dictated by these experiences anymore. It's a very attractive idea. And then again, we find ourselves sitting in the middle again of the possibility of all of the beauty and the joy in the world, hedonic pleasure, this beautiful world that we live in, which has, provi- which has an abundance of joy and happiness available to you. Thich Nhat Hanh says, happiness is available, please help yourself to it. Take as much as you like. Go ahead. Why not? Well, since you asked, <laughs> I do have a few reasons, right? Doubt. It's just doubt. It's just doubt. That's all it is. It's just doubt and fear and maybe some shame and some destructive internal attitudes that we have. It's not real. It might feel real, but it's certainly not true. So I also always like to reflect on, I always like to think of the historic Buddha in in a very um, human sense. And of course some of us probably know the story, the folklore story of him growing up in this palace and being sheltered, and totally not accurate story because we know through things like like archaeology and archaeological research that were actually there were no palaces in ancient India so the Buddha definitely didn't live in a palace because they didn't have those he was basically a at best a rich farmer's child and probably lived in a very elaborate mud structure (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) What he overcame and what he developed is actually everything that I'm talking about. His time, his place, and his world. Same, same. He saw that people were drawn and obsessed and preoccupied with this hedonic pleasure. He saw that there was was something vacant about that. He was driven by this existential, probably frustration that we all have of like, What is this life for? What am I doing here? He went out and and sought out all of the religious and spiritual practices of his time. He found all of them to be unsatisfying, ultimately. 
And I think what he came to realize is something that we all realize, is he came to realize in a very, very real, existential, experiential sense that the suffering he was experiencing was actually being created in his own mind. And if that the suffering he was experiencing was creating in his own mind, the happiness and the joy and the contentment that he was looking for could possibly also be created in his own mind. And the story that Cheryl told the other night of him being under the tree and Mara coming at them, it makes for a great story. And I like that story of him kind of going to war, to battle with his own inner experience. But I think really actually in his own frustration, the Buddha just sat down and just started to watch the mind. Which is what you've been doing all week. Watching it. What just in this radical frustration, I can just see this person sitting there going, "Okay, like what the fuck is really going on here?" <laughs> you know, like really, what's going on here? Like, I'm just going to watch what my mind is doing, and this mind, this is what mindfulness is: this metacognition, introspective awareness, this ability to watch experience unfold. It's not easy to do, as you know, but it can be done. And that is how, that's the how of it. This self-monitoring, this introspection, this self-reflectiveness, which is, I think, actually rooted in this radical idea of self-honesty. How honest can we really be about our desires and our fears and our hopes? Just radical, radical honesty. Just the cards on the table. Like, I'm, I'm done pretending, man. Like I just can't take it anymore. So scary to do that, I think, in this world. To really have that, the integrity and the, and the trust and the faith of just really standing up for yourself in, in that kind of way. And so what was the outcome of this for the Buddha? This brilliant mind of this man not only saw this ability to identify and to watch his mind, but he actually created a whole, he just categorized experience through Dharma teaching. He categorized everything that arises in the mind. He actually built out a, a software system of like, here's the operating system. Here's the present moment experience. Here's how your mind operates. Here's what creates suffering. Here's what creates joy. Here's how you do it. Everything has been categorized in Dharma, which is where we get all these ridiculous lists. But that was just a Buddhist brilliant way of organizing things. He didn't have written language. He didn't have a MacBook. He didn't even, he couldn't even like scratch it in the dirt. It was all oral translation, all oral tradition back there. He organized the mind-body system in such an elaborate way. He left us an insanely brilliant trail of breadcrumbs. So good that it's actually lasted this long. 
I'm so grateful for this early Buddhist tradition because it's like, the more I practice, it's like, I can corroborate. I love that Shell uses this word. It's one of those shower worlds I've stolen. I can corroborate in my own experience that I don't take the Dharma on blind faith. I practice and I go, oh yeah, okay, I see that. Oh yeah, I do. I am scared of pain. Oh, I do suffer about this. Okay, okay. Mindfulness becomes this, it's all about learning, learning, learning. What am I learning? It's fascinating to me. And how lucky we are that the Buddha actually, in his own experience, he, he developed it, he woke up to this, he spent 45 years developing his teachings and teaching other people. And he almost didn't. Because he realized that basically people weren't going to be down with this. He's like, oh man, this is like, this is some hard work. <clears throat> people are going to look at the hedonic treadmill and then look at my list of lists and go, forget it, bro. <laughs> I'm going to Starbucks. I'm going to take a selfie and say, I'm awesome. <laughs> hedonic pleasure. Yeah, look at me. I'm fucking great. Meanwhile, I'm just so unhappy and dissatisfied. It's okay, we all do it. But it was out of compassion for the world, that this Pali term, Anukampa. He, he, he realized, well, some people, some people will, will see this, will get this, will aspire towards this. And so he gives us these three trainings or the Eightfold Path. So the goal of the practice isn't to just become mindful. I know with the, the emergence and the popularity of mindfulness practice and the, the new Bible of Buddhism, the, the Satipatthana, the Satipatthana, everybody's so excited about the Satipatthana, the teachings and the four foundations of mindfulness, which is great. I'm not here to talk trash about the Satipatthana. But the Buddha said cultivate the Eightfold Path, which is the mindfulness is one of eight. So if you want to just do one of eight, and be 15% genuinely happy. <laughs> Go for it. Be my guest. How you doing? I'm about 15% happy <laughs> since I picked up this mindfulness stuff. <clears throat> which has sh- shined out very strongly on the 85% of the ways in which I'm unhappy. So i got to rethink this whole mindfulness thing. Yeah. So he teaches us to train the mind, and cultivate the heart. That's part of the meditative training system of, of Dharma. The Buddha said you have to, if you're going to be genuinely happy, if you're going to cultivate a sense of happiness and joy in this world, you have, to under, you have to understand your mind. Because your mind is dangerous. Be respectful, be careful. Sometimes I look at my mind and I'm like, yes, I, I see what you can do and I... I promise I will work with you. <laughs> and we, we train the mind, but we also cultivate the heart, which is what we've been doing here. We, we have to do both. I, I, I find that very important to do both. I actually have found that cultivating the heart has led me to much more happiness than training my mind, actually. I'll take meta over mindfulness all day long. Mm-hmm. But it's the mindfulness. They're, again, they're, 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 they're integrated. It's not one or the other. We train the mind. 
we cultivate the heart. Sila Samaripanya. We live a life of nonviolence, benevolence, and service. When we see our innate goodness and we have this complete view of being worthy and being valuable and having value for ourselves and care and concern and conscious and concern, we are inspired when we look at the world and we look at the suffering in this world, we can very easily discern, I do not want to add anymore. There is so much suffering in this world. I am interested in being a positive agent of change through a lifestyle of nonviolence, of non-harming, of benevolence, of service. Being of service to your fellow humans. Just through being kind to the person who made your drink wrong. Or being friendly to the person who didn't bring your food on time. Or being kind to the person at the airport who you want to assassinate because your flight was delayed. (laughs) That they had absolutely nothing to do with. (laughs) And most of all, we have to understand the limitations and the possibilities of this human experience. To be realistic. So at times, and I, and I find that it's, it's hard to, to calibrate. Because at times, and I think it's actually important, at times, sometimes my inner cultivation, my practice, sometimes my practice wanes because I'm putting a lot of time and energy into my life, into my world, into my career, into my family. And sometimes my practice suffers as a result of that. But that's okay. It's okay to, it's okay to cultivate the life that you want and to participate in the world. And then there's times where I sit retreats or I teach retreats and I have this inner cultivation and sometimes that feels really strong. So I'm, I'm, I'm constantly out of balance but I'm constantly monitoring where I'm out of balance and trying to make these adjustments, whether it's behavioral adjustments, whether it's practice adjustments. I need to sit more. I, my practice, my sitting practice has fallen off. I need to tune that up. Or I need some right view adjustments, some complete view adjustments, which usually I need to have about every three seconds. So I keep, <laughs> that'll keep you busy, folks. You know, you're looking for something to do. That will keep you busy. And I think most of all is that we have to sort of never give up on ourselves. I think that's the most important thing that I've noticed is in my degrees of falling in and out of love with the Dharma, with practice. It's just we don't we don't we don't give in to that doubt. The Buddha said that that is the most destructive force in the human mind, is the force of doubt. It will talk you out of everything. And it's so important, and it's been so helpful for me to just kind of be able to, to, to categorize it. Oh, that's just doubt. It's just doubt. And not open up, not hit the tab and let the drop-down menu come down, right? You're like, doubt. I wonder what's in there. Kaboom! <laughs> Don't take it out of the box and play with it. 
You know, we really just have to be very careful about that one. And what Cheryl said is so true. We oftentimes can't can't go to battle with it on its own turf. And it will be a companion, something that we work with. Noam Chomsky says, if you assume that there's no hope, you guarantee that there will be no hope. If you assume that there is an instinct for freedom, if you assume and can feel into this desire for freedom, there are opportunities to change things, there's a chance for you to contribute to making a better world for yourself and for others, and that is your choice. That is the choice that we make. So I offer this for your reflection this evening. Thank you for your kind attention. And let's just sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.